0: Welcome, everybody, to another edition of the Good Intelligence Podcast. I am David Marver of Change the Padres, joined by Padres Jagoff.
1: Yes, I'm here. I witnessed the Padres drubbing <laughs> at the hands of the Orioles today. Um, and we have a special episode today. Um, the thing with the Padres is we could sit here and talk about the Major League team, and, you know, I guess that's kind of interesting. But at this point, the thing to talk about with the Padres is is the future, Um we're in a rebuilding year. Uh, we're not going anywhere this year, and uh, you know we just had a, a big draft. And I think it's important that we talk about what where we stand for the future. Um, you got the owner coming on and saying he's got a two-year plan to rebuild. So uh, we wanted to get um, the authority on the subject. Uh, John Conniff, uh, writer for MadFryers.com. Um, He's also written for Baseball America. He's been on Fox Sports San Diego. You've heard him on Social Hour. Um, you know he writes for affiliate newspapers. Even wrote for the Guam Daily, um, Pacific, and Vietnamese, appeared. Yeah. yeah, and appeared on uh, Padres and Pints. So he, he is a, a member, uh, you know, a participant in the Golden Age of Padres podcasting. So welcome, John.
2: Thank you very much for having me, guys. I appreciate that time. And you were live from our uh, low-A affiliate, Fort Wayne, right? That's right. I'm from a, a Marriott Hotel overlooking uh, Tin Caps Field, Parkview Field. And so I've been here for a couple of days and looking forward to some, some chats about prospects. Who did you get to see mm. uh, pitch, perform while you were there? I have seen uh, I saw Jerry Keel today. He threw really well, but the Tin Caps had no offense. I've seen uh, Jean Cosme, Thomas Dormany, and uh, hopefully, I think I think Knicks is on, on the mound for tomorrow. Knicks are... It's not Austin Smith. So the pitching staff here is the uh, the big uh, the big thing with the ten caps this year.
1: Are they still doing the the split where they they'll start they'll start two starters in the game?
2: They've pretty much kind of curtailed that. They're, they keep a pretty tight leash on a lot of the innings of especially guys like Nick's and uh, Logan Allen's been out for a little bit with a bit of an elbow strain. He was the guy that came over from uh, Boston the Craig Kimball trade. So anyone who's around nineteen or twenty there extremely careful with the amount of innings they pitch and the least bit of strain they 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 take them out Hmm.
1: I guess I've got a a general question Um, there's a lot of talk you know you get a new general manager you bring AJ Preller in and the talk goes towards you know we're going to fix the development system you know we're going to fix a minor league system so that our prospects actually develop into something how how does that work um are, is it the managers? Are they all? I assume they're all employees of the San Diego Padres. Um, so, how does AJ Preller influence the development of his prospects from from you know his office in San Diego? How does he delegate that down? Does he have uh, other you know people under him that, that oversee the manager in Fort Wayne? Um, like like, what is the change when you get a new general manager?
2: Well, you know, I mean, the, the biggest change the Padres had, if you go back in history a little bit, was when they got rid of the, the Sandy Alderson regime and brought in Hoyer and McLeod. Now, the, the guys Hoyer and Burns pretty much had more of the same philosophy where they were drafting more upside and willing to spend more money in the draft. When Preller came in, they had a slightly different change in how they looked at prospects. But to answer your question, they generally divide it between scouting you know, and development. As far as overseeing, like the guy in Fort Wayne, the manager, Anthony Contreras, that'd be Sam Ganey, who's in charge of development. And he goes up and down the system. He'll look at the prospects to see how they're developing. He'll oversee what a lot of the roving instructors and things like that. And Sam's idea is kind of to to bring the guys in once they've been drafted through the system, decide when the guys are going to be promoted, evaluate how well each different coach is doing, uh, the, the different instructors. And that's something, I've been doing this since 2003, That's kind of gotten better with each um, new regime as it had more of an emphasis on development and keeping things the same way. When I first did this, before Alderson came in, it was like each little uh, minor league team was its own little fiefdom, you know? <laughs> they'd, they'd tell someone to do something one way in Fort Wayne and a different way in like, Elsinore, and it's still a different way in AA Mobile, which used to be the AA affiliate of the Padres. Right.
0: Right. So what is what does it actually mean on a day-to-day basis though? And and just to give mm-hmm. a little context, I am now in Delaware. Uh, most of my right. coworkers are Orioles fans. Right. They go on and on about the Orioles philosophy in the minor leagues. For example, one of their biggest gripes is Jake arietta obviously he's pitching very well for Chicago, did not right. pitch that well for Baltimore, um, even though his numbers adjusted were still pretty good. But they say that, you know, basically the Baltimore minor league system, they don't allow you to throw certain pitches. So um, they have some guys in the minor leagues right now that they're not even allowing to throw a cut fastball, for example. Um, so I'm just wondering, for the Padres, you know, they switch they switch philosophies, or, or they say they switch, switch philosophies. Obviously, now there's Sam Ganey there instead of, you know, McLeod or whoever else would have been.
2: Uh, well, in, Sam Ganey it, replaced uh, Randy Smith. And I mean, kind of the difference, so we make sure we're all on the same page, is, you know, the, the Hoyer and Burns regime both kind of got out of, the really intense kind of money ball side of the DePodesta, you know, Grady son guys and start drafting younger guys, more upside, and we're spending more money. The difference with the Preller regime, and you can see this in the draft, is they believe much more in ceiling than other guys do, and they, they're willing to take a little more risk. And Preller's people kind of believe that they're willing to take a, someone, you know, like Quantrill is like the perfect example, that... You know, he didn't pitch last year, he pitched very little the year before because of Tommy John surgery, and even the kid they took in the third round, Mason Thompson, pitched one inning, another guy from Tommy John. They believe that what these guys can eventually become is you know, very good players, and they believe that the development staff they have in place now, which he's kind of changed around a little bit a year, some new managers, some different people who are doing development, will be enough to make these guys into major league players and we can even go back to some of the guys they traded or didn't trade in 2015 where you can kind of see that philosophy
0: okay but like so i guess on a you know on a Mm dated there's nothing that they're doing so that that would be analogous to like what baltimore is doing for example they're like restricting certain pitches they can throw i don't know if that's something the previous generation was doing or if they had certain ways of teaching players how to look for pitches at the plate that has changed like i'm just trying to get an understanding from the
1: base and like I I seem to recall, like, a past regime, wasn't there, like, an initiative to to really push the change-up onto a lot of pitchers?
2: I I don't remember which regime that was, but it it wasn't that long ago. No, let me try answering David's question first, is that, yes, I mean, they look, they want, like, for pitching, they'll look for certain mechanics that could potentially hurt someone's arm, and they'll try to change that around. During the bullpen side sessions, they'll monitor, for instance, how many breaking pitches a guy throws, you know, they'll, they'll look to see if any strain. For example, you know, if they get Quantrill up, and let's suppose he's in the Cal Lake next year with the Lake Elsinore Storm, you know, he's not going to throw 100 pitches because the Storm have a chance to win, you know, the Southern Division title. I mean, it's all about development. And as far as, you know, PJ was talking about, in the previous regime under, you know, Fuson, those guys, yeah, they had a thing about how they had to throw 20% change-ups. And uh, because they, they didn't believe in drafting power arms, but they thought more the emphasis should be on the development side than on the scouting because they thought too many of the high school guys were vastly overpriced. And they thought they could teach people how to play the game better than they could get these, like, raw talent. So what you would see is you'd see a lot of winning at the lower A levels and maybe the double A players like a Wade LeBlanc then they'd get up to you know the higher levels of AAA or the majors, and they just didn't have kind of the really the raw ability, you know, to compete. I mean, they're they're great guys to talk to if you had to go out and interview them, the guys like Josh Gear and that. But you know, he Josh Gear throws about 87 miles an hour, and if he makes a mistake, it's going to get crushed.
1: And that was the case with with LeBlanc. I mean, exactly. I, I do recall that you know they would they would target guys that couldn't throw as hard and. Um, they you know they would they would talk about how they had good secondary pitches. They teach him right. the changeup, um, and it works sometimes. You know, LeBlanc had some good starts. Oh, LeBlanc was G- a
2: better you know LeBlanc even, better, even Gear yeah LeBlanc had better numbers than Matt Latos coming up to Double A. And I, the best right. story I have on LeBlanc was we used to take photos, and when I was sitting, I was in Portland one time, kind of in the lower box, take a picture, and Nelson Cruz is up there, and he takes about couple looks at leblanc throwing and he turns to me actually and says get your camera ready this ball is going to go a long long way (laughs) he he crushed one to right center i nearly had a car passing by so i mean but you look at way leblanc he couldn't throw a fastball inside as a lefty and then hurt him and so when the hoyer regime came in they started making a bigger thing they you know they point out that a pitcher has to throw about 70% of the time fastballs. And unless you have a good fastball, and that was Randy Smith, who was the predecessor of Sam Ganey, said, you know, it, you're going to have a real tough time succeeding. So that's kind of been a change, and kind of the proler group has kind of taken it to a little bit of a, a different level. I don't, know, I don't want to put a, whether it's good or bad, they just kind of look at guys a little bit more. And, uh, and that's kind of the difference that I see.
1: I guess on that. Um, speaking of the draft, mm-hmm. um, they took uh, Eric Lauer right. in the first round, and to me, Eric Lauer looked like one of those, uh, you know, short time to the majors, maybe lower ceiling, kind of a Wade LeBlancy type pitcher. Um, how does he fit in with that? I mean, they, they certainly took some high risk, high reward uh, pitchers, mm-hmm. but then I, I see Lauer you know, taking up one of the first round picks. And and I wonder how he fits into that.
2: Well, you thought exactly what what I did. And I had a chance to uh, interview Jim Callis afterward. And, you know, he he, he said that he thought Lauer threw a little harder, harder than uh, LeBlanc, was a little bit better athlete. He liked his secondary pitches a little bit more. And he also pointed out The draft is a really good example why you should stay off of Twitter before the draft is finished on my part and uh, (laughs) and David Jay's. Um, It made more sense after the second and third days. Lauer probably was picked where he belonged. And, you know, he probably has a ceiling of about a number three pitcher. But I think as I listened to one of you guys' podcasts before, you know, in terms of roster construction, you know, it is vastly important for the Padres to have someone in the three or four slot, or particularly the five, that is within you know that six-year window where you have lower costs. I mean, the last thing the Padres want to do is pay for someone like an Ian Kennedy, like ten or eleven million a year for or for I don't have the numbers in front of me for a guy that's a number four pitcher. So yeah, I thought Lauer was okay, but of the the first six guys were picked, that's the only guy that was really kind of could be considered um, a safe. Or kind of a a, a, uh, sabermetric pick. The other Mm -hmm. guys are like you know pure scouting picks.
1: I was curious with Lauer specifically. So the Padres sent him to the Arizona League, right? The start. Um, Yeah. I guess for him, I assumed he was going to go straight to Tri Cities, just because he's a, you know, he's supposed to be a quicker to the majors, you know, quick through the system type pitcher.
2: I even talked to Sam recently since the draft. My my guess would be that they're going to send all these guys out to Arizona League where they have all their staff right now. They're going to see what they have. They'll probably put them out in, in Tri-Cities along with Quantrill. Um, and, you know, they'll, they'll throw about maybe two or three innings at a time, especially a guy like Lauer who's coming off a long college season. You know, I think next year where they start will be interesting. My guess is both uh, Quantrill and Lauer, unless they have any hiccups, or will probably even start at, at the Cal League at uh, High A. And, oh, that would be great for me. Yeah. And they'll probably throw the the two kids, Thompson and Lawson, I would assume, would be in, in Fort Wayne. Well, one of the guys is an interesting pick, too, that I was kind of doubtful when I first heard it is Potts, you know, who changed his name from Sanchez. Mm-hmm. You know, this guy is only going to turn 18 on October 31st. And when I was talking to a couple of the guys who were here in Fort Wayne who were with the organization. They said the reason they took him was. You know, they thought if he was a high school senior, which he should be by the age-appropriate group, he'd be playing in the perfect game showcases, and he'd probably be a top 20 pick next year. So they have a chance to get a full year of instruction in with him before, and, you know, he'll go to Fort Wayne probably next year. They'll probably move him from short to third base, you know, as an 18-year-old third you know, baseman, and that's just that's tremendous. We can do something there.
0: He's also had a decent start so far in the Arizona League.
2: Um, Yeah.
0: Showing some some uh, play discipline, which is a little bit rare in that league. Um, yeah, so nice short of, you know, going, going back to Lauer, you know, the, the draft has become much more game theory than it used to be. In the past, it was just you pick a player if you thought that the, the amount of money he wanted was less than his value, right? And you pick the best players available. But now with the the, the draft slot bonus structure, um, you pick a guy like Lauer, you pay him $200,000 less or $160,000 less. Right. And it affords you the opportunity to, to sign some of the uh, the other guys in later rounds um, and just to kind of close out the, the the draft here that we were talking about
2: well the big Potts guy is- who signed was with Sanchez or, or Potts because he signed for a million bucks which is about a million five less than the slot was or uh, around that number. I don't have it in front of me but that that's the big get, kind of the game changer in terms of then you can go into the second round and you can spend a lot more money. but go ahead, I'm sorry for interrupting
0: yeah, no problem. Um, so, Buddy. Reed, that's okay. You
1: can you can interrupt
2: Marver anytime
1: you want.
0: <laughs> Buddy Reed, obviously playing in the College World Series, he cannot right. sign until that completes. Um, yes. So that, in my opinion, that's probably what's holding up the Reggie Lawson signing because there's some slot bonus issues there. No, Lawson
2: signed? No, Lawson did sign. From what I he um. did sign. Okay, yes. so they've signed nine out of their first ten picks.
0: Irrelevant to my question. So, anyways, with with the amount of slot bonus they're going to have left, do you expect them to sign any of the High school players that they have left after round ten, for which anything above hundred thousand has to come out of the this this bonus pool. So they have Trey Carter, Jamie Sarah, and some of these guys might be signed. I'm going off the Potters.com website. So so blame them. Um, okay. Jackson Winsky, any any of these other later round high school players that they selected um, who are currently unsigned? Do, do you yeah. expect that to play into that at all?
2: I do because I mean I, I think if they sign, let's say they sign Buddy Reed for around a million dollars around 13 they get an extra five percent you can sign from the overall 12 million so that's around 640. so let's just keep around numbers suppose it's around a million dollars. The scouts that are looking at these guys from 10 to 20 they got a pretty good idea about which ones will will go and which ones will not. I would expect the kid at number 11 supposedly according to some guys I've talked to uh, I'll drop sources there you go make me sound like a real <laughs> professional journalist have said that he's about ready to sign. So Winski would, I mean, all you have to do and, and kind of like what David was saying is take a look and see what a high school seniors, uh, college seniors paid. And if the, the, the way they sign these, these kids now, um, especially then, they can, their college, paying for the college doesn't count against it. So if you take a kid like Swinski, I think he's going to uh, University of Illinois, if they offer him like 250000 and they say, you know, look, we'll pay for four years of college if things don't work out. You should go. I mean, you're going you're gonna to find out really quick in professional baseball whether or not you have a chance to go. A good example is a kid that was drafted, I believe, in 2014 in the seventh round. A catcher called Zach Reisendorf didn't hit in the Arizona League, didn't didn't play well, got cut in spring training. he signed for 170000 You know, he's 20 years old now. He gets to go back to college with you know some money in the bank and 4 years of college paid. I mean, it's not a bad he's deal. Probably going to have a good time. <laughs> yeah, he's going to have a good time at college with that. Yeah. Also a thing too for for college baseball, which is unlike, you know, college basketball or football, very few guys get a full all expense paid scholarship. So that even going there they have to pay some of it or part of it. And it's maybe compared to when on a whole you guys were when we were when I was a kid, you know, in, in the in the 80s. Guys, who, had the, guys who, were, who were drafted you know, weren't playing these travel teams in 100 games. You talk to some of the parents of these kids, like you come out to Fort Wayne, You know, a guy like Jake Bauer a couple of years ago who's now with the Tampa Bay Rays, he was playing like 110 games a year from when he was 14 years old. So there's not a really big change in going to be a pro. I mean, you might as well find out if you're going to make it or not because the minor leagues are, is a big-time age game.
1: Well, yeah, I actually talked with Mickey Moniak real briefly Mm -hmm. since he went to the greatest high school in the land here. And uh, I I know he (laughs) was (laughs) playing.
0: You didn't even go to the greatest high school in the Carlsbad region.
1: (sighs) Please, Marver. Let me know when you guys get a first-round overall pick.
0: Well, you can let me know when Mickey Moniak wins World Series MVP.
1: Fine, fair enough but he was playing a ton of games. I mean, he's on every possible travel team. Right. He's I mean, Mickey's from a, a wealthy family whose dad wasn't work, you know, didn't really need to work full time. So they had the time to commit to all of these travel teams and obviously that's a huge advantage for him, but and I'm sure that creates a lot of inequalities, you know, based on class and income
2: and stuff. Yeah, that's, that's been know, the been written about that too, yeah.
1: Yeah, I mean Mickey. Mickey is like had every opportunity to excel, and that's probably why you know one of the big reasons he excelled. You know, aside from God given talent, but um, he was playing a lot of games, traveling all over the country, and it's not cheap, not cheap at all. No, so I mean that's kind of the point.
2: It's not a, a, as big a thing to kind of just go off and and start your pro career. And I mean, put it this way: if you get drafted after your senior at college, you're twenty two or twenty three. I mean it's it's a really tight schedule to to make it. I mean, you can't be repeating a level, you get injured, you kind of screwed up. I mean, there's obviously people that do it, but you're just in a much better situation if you can be someone like Michael Gettys, who just got promoted from Fort Wayne and be, you know, about twenty years old and be in the Cal League and then hopefully you should be in a double A next year where he'd be a college you no know, he'd be a college junior. So once Michael finishes a whole year, he could be set to go to El Paso. If he'd gone to college, like I think he's going to go to Georgia, I believe, he would have been drafted. He'd be down in, in Tri City, so it's just a tremendous advantage, the number of at bats, and you know, playing ball full time.
1: Speaking of Geddes, I mean, I'm excited for him. Mm-hmm. You know, he seems like a high ceiling, exciting player. Very where so, if he yeah. puts it together, yeah, he would be really, really exciting. Um, so he's in high A now. Correct. I guess my question is, at what level? should we start getting excited about players? You know, you've got like, like Denilson Lamette, Correct. I guess, yeah. um, you know, he was pitching at Elsinore, he got promoted up to San Antonio. you doing great in, you know, in high A, and I try to, you know, calm myself and not get too excited because I think a lot of people excel at the A, even double A levels and then kind of, uh, I guess, plateau off. Is AA the level where you should start getting excited for, for numbers that are being put up? or, yeah, or I,
2: I would say so. Is it
1: okay to get excited for single-A well, numbers?
2: Well, you know, you should get excited. But, you know, this kind of goes back to the whole question about prospect lists and, and things like that. I mean, I, I and uh, Kevin and Ben and David are all on our site. We all enjoy writing them. But in a sense, they're kind of just fun. But they're also somewhat BS. I mean, there's really three, three, three different levels of the miners, And you look at different things at each one. If you're in the Arizona League or Northwest League, where Arizona and Tri-Cities are, you're looking for tools about what someone has a possibility to do. When you get off a double A and triple A, you know, it's not so much what someone can do, but what someone is. So numbers are a lot more important, but then you got to take in park conditions and all that. Probably the toughest level to judge is the A-ball leagues because you got to take in tools, you got to look what someone's doing, and you also got to keep in age levels. I mean, the best example is. is if if the three of us went to see a game at Tri-Cities and we watched a pitcher who was 19 through 96, flashed a good curve and a changeup, but also maybe gave up uh, two home runs, struck out seven, and walked four, you know, we'd say, yeah, it's not great, but man, he has a potential. He could be really good and all this. If we go to like San Antonio three years later and the guy has the same performance, you're going to come away and go, yeah, you know, he's too much, too inconsistent. And that's what. That's what the minor leagues really is about is all the a lot of these guys, nearly all of them have the talent to play there. It's just a question of how consistent they can make their performance.
1: I guess on on the levels also, mm-hmm. um I, I was actually chatting with uh with Sackbunt Chris from uh Padres Public today. Yeah, he's a great the guy. Padres game. Yeah, great guy, uh super smart. Um we were talking about the A numbers that are being put up because we watched Ryan Schimpf, I think, hit a, a weak ground out yeah. at the time. And, um, you know, Ryan Schimpf was putting up amazing numbers, amazing power numbers at El Paso right. before he got called up. And, you know, Padres fans are on the edge of their seat. They're waiting for, for Hunter Renfro to get called up, for instance, right. putting up giant power numbers. Um, Hedges is just exploding, yes. you know, this week pretty much. And the thing about Hedges hitting whatever it is, seven home runs in eight games or or whatever he's done. Um, He has a
0: 780 slugging in AAA right now.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I don't know whether to get excited for Hedges or if this is making me less excited for Hunter Renfro in that these numbers that are being put up there are, I mean, I, I know it's a hitting environment, but I didn't know it was this kind of hitting environment. So...
0: Well, it hasn't been historically. I mean, that's that's the thing. I, I mm-hmm. you know I'm I'm someone who follows this pretty closely. Historically, El Paso has been a hitting environment in a hitter's right. league, but this year I, I don't know if there's something different. If the weather is different because of El Nino, and I know I, I actually going back, I, I studied physics in college and I did a study on Peco Park. And the last time there was an El Nino year, it actually influenced. Or the last year there was weather that was a little bit uh, you know wetter, more humid early in the year. It actually influenced day game statistics at Peco park and so i wonder if that's something that's playing in here if it's even more of a hitters league this year or if we actually have legitimate talent knocking on the door finally
2: well i i don't think i've ever seen anyone any triple a club hit as well as el paso and tucson was probably a little bit more of a hitters park than el paso was and the scary thing is that that's such a hitters league el paso in that division is kind of the pitchers park i mean las vegas is a much we're a better place to hit, so is Reno, Colorado Springs, Albuquerque because of the elevation. To get back to your question, you know, it really just depends on the different players that you're seeing. Like Renfro, for example, I saw him in San Antonio uh, in May of last year, and he looked horrible. I mean, he was just, just str- you know, offering it all types of balls out of the zone, all over. It looked like he had no approach. And the project's really kind of set him down a couple times. Uh, and his hitting coach, Morgan Burkhart, who was at San Antonio with him last year and was with him in El Paso this year, really helped refine his swing and his approach. And he basically told him that, you know, he, can't, he can hit a lot of balls. Hunter's a tremendously talented guy, but some he can hit better than others. And so he's, I, when I was out in El Paso in April, he looked like night and day. I mean, he looked so much better. Now, when he comes up to the majors, you know, he's probably still going to strike out a decent amount. He's not going to really turn it on. Um, immediately, but he is a legitimate five-tool guy. And with Hedges, I've seen Hedges since I think I've seen Hedges since he was drafted when he was in Fort Wayne. He's always been a spectacular um, defensive catcher. But the biggest thing with him now is he—he's actually not only going to right field, he's going to right field with power. And he attributed that to just kind of being on time and being in a hitting position when you know the ball is released.
0: He changes uh, swing. Uh, I A little bit, you know, yeah. I was writing an article about that this year, and I just never got around to finishing it. But if you go back and look at his home run highlights from previous years, he had a little hitch in his like leg kick, and right. this year he just sets it straight down. And I, you know, obviously that's, you know, cause and effect is really difficult to determine on something like that. But I mean, at the very least, they're toying with him, so I, you know, I'm willing to give them the benefit of the doubt that he's actually changed something. And he's still relatively young uh, for yeah.
2: AAA, so and that was a bad mistake they had last year, I think, in, in calling him up. Which oh, I, I didn't really understand. And but you know, one thing you see with him is he just looks much more unbalanced. When I saw him, and Hedge is really kind of an interesting case about how you can kind of screw up uh, development on on several levels a few times. But Hedges now just looks much more balanced at the plate. He's a lot stronger, I think, than than you would think. And I wrote this for Baseball America, too. I thought the best stat that came out of there was his manager in El Paso, Rod Barajas, you know, is a 14-year veteran as, as a catcher. He has all of his pitchers under about 1.4 to the plate. He doesn't want anyone throwing over to first base. If, if people want to try to run on Austin, he said, be my guest. And, I mean, I think they have a their own charting system when they've had you know, not when they've allowed people to steal, when it's been, like, Austin awesome going against someone. He has an amazing number. I don't want to throw out a number because I'll screw it up. I don't have it in front of me. But, I mean, he is he is a, he is a lot of fun to watch defensively.
1: Man, I just looked at his stats, and he's averaging a home run every nine at-bats right yeah. now.
2: Yeah, You want to keep him down there a little bit because he just doesn't have the number of plate appearances. And, you know, I can't emphasize enough... Uh, you know, we talked to Sam Ganey when they called him up, and he gave a lot of uh, reasons why they did. They thought, you know, he was making progress. They so were going to try this new form of development at the major leagues. And, you know, I interviewed Austin, and he thought that going up there did help him. He learned a lot of things mentally about the game, and he thinks it makes him a better player. And, you know, maybe that's true. But I, I also think he needed to play a lot every day. But, you know, there was, there was mistakes made with him before. Is when Jason McCloud drafted him, I interviewed him. Who was a Padres Scouting director, Charge of Scouting and Development. And he made the point that he thought Hedges was a good offensive player, but his defense was so much better, is that it was gonna to be tough for, you know, them not to promote him. And he wanted him to go a steady year at a time. And then after he left to the Cubs with Jed Hoyer, you know, that was where you start having two different groups, like the I know the development staff wanted to keep him in like Elsinore and A. J. Hench pushed. They were gonna make this aggressive promotion to him to double A and you know, he really struggled at the plate and then he was trying to pull everything and uh that's not San Antonio's a bad part to do that. So, you know, they nearly screwed up, you know, hedges and that's a lot of ability and that's a lot of money to, to flush. But from what I saw him in uh you know El Paso, I think it's only a matter of time before when they finally deal Norris they're gonna bring hedges up every day and catches what they should do.
0: And and just to, to... To clarify one more thing, or just make one more point. Uh, sure, I I go watch the highlight of every home run that, that is hit at Triple A just to see if it's a true Petco homer. Yeah, most of Renfro's home runs this year, when I've seen them, they were they were home runs. They, I mean, they would have been out at Petco. Um, a lot of his are actually opposite field. I've been seeing uh, that I think would get out at the new Jack Porch or whatever you want to call it now. Whatever they, however they've marketed that this year. Um,
2: Oh, this is this is, is anecdotal, but you can even talk when you talk to, to guys Renfro plays with. They'll talk about different parks, how they're different, tough to hit someone in, and they'll say things like, "Yeah, in batting practice, you know, Renfro even had a little bit of difficulty at first hitting it out of there." I mean, you know, he is. I mean, he has. Yeah, you're absolutely right. He has I, I, this power. I,
0: I think he. You know, I think this year, at the major league level, he might already have 10 home runs, and I know that's not. An earth-shattering number, but for mm-hmm. someone grown as a rookie, that would be pretty significant for the Padres. <laughs> yeah. uh, but Hedges recently, uh, some of them were not PECA home runs. I hate to break that to people listening, but some of them like barely got out, and they were, uh, you know, El Paso home runs. So I, I don't think we should go buck wild with his, you know, six home runs in seven days, or five home runs in six days, or whatever. But
2: uh, I think what you should go buck wild though on Hedges is not necessarily home runs. But if you have a chance, that you know, if you have a chance to sit there and watch him for about a three or four game series, like I had to earlier, was he's just using all the field much more than he ever did. And with Austin Hedges, you know, the calling card is his his defense. And if he can hit something like a like a two sixty two an empty two sixty or two seventy, he's incredibly valuable. So I mean, hitting with power is great. I mean, I, I'm a Padres fan and I like that a lot too, but. Just seeing him use the whole field and go to right, hit hard line drives to right field is that's what I came away most impressed with.
0: And especially because this was such a huge year for him, like if he didn't progress offensively, and I know he's had injuries and only 100 plate appearances or 100 at bats, yeah, maybe 110 plate appearances, you know, it would have been really tough to justify trading. And I know Norris had a bad start, but but at least for the foreseeable future, it would have been tough to say we're going to go with this defense-only catcher over the guy who's been proven. Is a proven two win above a placement player for now four years in his career, you know? Right. So for him, it's it's so such it comes at such a great time. And not only that, but this is a discussion we've had multiple times on this podcast. And actually, um, uh, was Ben Lindbergh from Grantland and, and Baseball Prospectus. They actually discussed this on the podcast. I sent them a question, they discussed it on robot umpires and how that would change the value of someone like Austin Hedges. And it's something where, yeah, if they ever went to some sort of electronic strike zone, he would have lost all of his value if he didn't develop offensively. So this is something that I- not
1: all, not all. You're forgetting his his sexy pop times.
0: Yeah, yeah, I mean, there's there's not that much value in terms of runs, in preventing stolen bases. There there's just not. But I mean, in the catching, pitch framing, there's a ton. But in the in the actual throwing out base runners, there's, there's not. But so this, anyways, his offensive progression was it is a A huge deal for him, more so than probably anyone else in the system, in my opinion.
2: Well, there was a good quote. I think it was in the, again, that was in the BA article that I wrote. Can I curse on this podcast a little bit? Of course. Okay. Yes. You know, Ryan Miller, who's the catcher on uh, the missions, was talking about when he was at Fort Wayne, they had a pitcher who came down from San Antonio where Hedges was catching. And Miller goes out to talk to the pitcher. And then before he goes back, the pitcher says, you know, like, Hey, dude. And no offense, but I just came back from throwing the hedges, and everything I throw looks like a strike, even the shitty ones. You know, so I mean, <laughs> I think that. I mean, that's how much. I mean, all the pitchers that I've ever talked to absolutely rave about throwing two hedges. And I mean, I you know I just came here from watching Austin Allen, who's hitting really well, but you know is very much a work in progress as a catcher. And in a way, it's kind of unfair to a lot of the catchers here. It's like you have this natural tendency to compare them defensively to hedges and hedges. I think as Ross said, he said, you know, he's a Padres employee and he's his manager, but he said pretty matter of factly, he's probably better than about nearly everyone defensively on the major leagues right now. I mean, defensively. And I don't know how you'd measure that, but, uh, I mean, I don't know. I, I, I do not see a whole lot of people better than, than Hedges defensively. He is very impressive.
0: This is actually a good mm-hmm. question because uh, you could measure it de- you know, defensively. But I'm wondering, mm-hmm. and this is something that I'm guessing you would know and it's probably pretty tough to look up online, all the pitch framing stuff. So it's based on camera work. And yeah. you know, they have, they can tell you instantaneously how much the ball spun and how fast it went and what type of pitch right. it was and whether or not it was a strike. Do, they, do the Padres have that internally at each level, or is that something that... They do. They do, yeah,
2: okay. So they, yeah, because I was talking with one guy up in uh, the, the press box, and David J also talked to him, the, the video coordinator. That's available to the Padres. That's not available to, to someone like me, and I'd have to really figure out how to do that. But they, do they, you know, they're really big on spin rate. I do know that for their pitchers, yes. So
0: is that something where... Do they only have access to it for the Padres, or do they have access to it for every major league team? Um, like for example, if they want, if they were scouting an Oakland A's player for some reason, I don't know why they would, but let's just say there was going right. to be a trade. Could they say, oh, what's the spin rate of this 19-year-old guy in low A? Is that something that they have access to, or is that yeah, something? I don't, they-
2: I don't know if they would not. I mean, they keep, you know, in each organization, there's a whole level of guys who do statistics who, who want certain things and, I'm not sure how willing they are to share you know, video, especially of their you know, lower-level guys. Um, the Padres, the thing about the minor leagues, especially in the, the Cal League and Texas League, is if they're taping all those games, and those teams play each other so much. For instance, if you wanted to find out something about Oakland's A guys, they're, they're in Midland, and the Missions probably play Midland about 30 times a year. So you're going to have some video on whoever you want to look at at that level. That's a good one. Would, would, would they give it to you all the way back to Visalia or uh, or their their teams in Midwest League? Probably not. But that's a guess on my part. I don't know that for a fact.
1: I've got one last Hedges question. Sure. Um, so, you know, he's been at AAA. Mm-hmm. Um, he's blocked by Derek Norris at the major league level right now. Right. And, you know, for a while this year, Norris was pretty much untradeable. Um, I don't know how much trade value he has now, but hypothetically, if he were not to be traded and he continues blocking hedges, at what point should fans start worrying about hedges development being stalled or regressing because he's stuck in AAA?
2: There's a couple of good points that are on our website that some of our uh, our readers have made. And we, I mean, to plug our side, we have some great readers who want to know about, you know, what the third-string catcher on Fort Wayne's doing. So these guys yeah. are pretty in, intense. Um, but, you know, they made a point that maybe Hedges should stay uh, in AAA through August and then call him up in September, you know, kind of for his clock, which was kind of screwed up last year, which is another thing we haven't really discussed. And uh, just to give him some more experience, I, I can't imagine them, if Hedges continues, obviously not at this pace, but, Puts together a, a good offensive season. Just by speaking to those the different Padres regimes, it's kind of been one thing that's been consistent. This is Austin's third different regime. All of them are absolutely in love with with Hedges. So I would, I'd have a hard time seeing them not Hedges not being the everyday catcher next year, unless something, you know, something really strange happens.
0: Would you say the same so, thing for Renfro and uh, Aswahe and Margot and anyone else right now at AAA
2: that's, you know? Well, see- one thing Padres- that was really interesting is if you look at before the trades that Pellar made, the Padres had a, a decent system. There a lot of guys in there that were going to be major league players. But if you do a ranking based just on ceiling, about, you know, someone could be, there was kind of a, a clear separation. There were three guys, was Hedges, Renfro, and Whistler, and Whistler was kind of apart from those two. You know, it was very much Hedges and Renfro. And those are kind of the prel regime's type of players, players they could see have a potential of being something more than, you know, a, a major league player. Like when someone like me comes out to Fort Wayne, if you see a, a guy that's going to be just an average, even below average big league player, they're really going to stand out. And so this regime values the potential more than the, the certainty. So as with Renfro, yeah, I know they were, I mean, they put a lot of things into Renfro the year before in San Antonio. And, you know, they really like what they're seeing. I mean, I saw Renfro make a play in El Paso. It was like in mid-right field. He came in, and he just threw, I mean, a seed to the third baseman. And not a bounce, just straight from right field. You know, they took off, I think I think it was Shrimp. You know, took off Shrimp's arm, but he put the tag down. And you just see him. I mean, he's the backup center fielder. He can run around and play out there. Um, power, he's, the whole thing with him is going to be his approach. Because I think uh, Barajas made the point why he struggled a little bit in double-A was physically he just went through like Elsinore, and he, he was just bigger and stronger than everybody else and could just you know beat him up. One guy in San Antonio who's kind of under the radar is Nick Torres. I, I like him a lot. He's a pretty good outfielder. He could kind of be in the mix, too.
1: Well, I guess thinking of people in the mix, um, Pete, Pete, Peter Seidler, uh, you know, mm. went on the radio in response to uh, our fire Mike D campaign. Um, right. And w- one of the things he said is that he's looking at this as a two-year rebuild. Mm. Um, I don't know how to interpret that. I don't know if that means the middle of 2018 is when they're going to be good or the start of 2019. But I mean, I think a lot of us think that that's a little aggressive, but um, let's say that that's their plan. And and I don't certainly take most of what the ownership or management says on face as the truth, but let's say they really are trying for a two-year rebuild. Which players in the advanced minors would we be looking at to lead that rebuild? And, and how impactful do we think they'll be at the major league level? I mean, we've talked Renfro. I think he's an obvious right. one. I think Hedges is probably an obvious one. Um, but who else is a starter that that is good enough or has the potential to be good enough by that time frame to contribute to a playoff level team. Whose show did he say
2: that on? Was that on Dan Cilio's show? Uh, it was on, um, he went on Scott and BR. Oh, that's shocking. They didn't ask him a follow-up question on how he defined <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> well, Cilio's
1: been pushing it as well. Um, he, he brought on some scouts from the Blue Jays system who who I think Cilio is taking out of context, but Cilio is really pushing the two-year window also and and pushed that to Mike D this morning. So I don't doubt that what Cilio says is something that's been pushed to him right. as a talking point. So, you know, I think that's what the team is trying to publicly say. Um, I, I know Kevin Acey reported on, uh, I think Craig Alston was filling in, and Acey said that within the Padres organization, he'd heard 2020, 2021, which I think is a little more realistic, yeah. but that's certainly not a popular thing to say. So, I mean, like, on face, if we want to believe it, and we're looking at, let's say, that started 2019 – Who's starting on this team that we have? Um, who 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 can fans look for in the minor league system to be an actual you know playoff
2: level starter? Well, to try to give you a, a semi-intelligent uh, you know answer to to a very good question is one, as you said, I'm not exactly sure what rebuild means if the pieces will start to become in place, and two, I mean, you know, as a as a writer and the, the the generic scouts, I mean. You and I could both go to a game. I could think Rinfo could play. You could think he wouldn't. And you could go down to find a couple of scouts in the food line and want them to repeat what you want him to say and want to repeat what I want to say. So I've never put a lot of faith in that. As far as the guys that are coming up, you know, it, on Mad Friars a bunch of us had disagreements on how much Dick, how good Dickerson could be. And he's actually hit at every level he's ever been at. Um, he could be someone to watch. Uh, a Swahe is a really small guy. He has a very good defensive player. Whether or not he'll get the bat taken out of his hands is kind of another question. A lot of their starting pitching, there's really, after LeMay, possibly Michael Kelly, but that's really pushing it. There really isn't the starting pitching to do that. Probably next year you're going to see a lot of really good starting pitching at the A-ball level. Um, I said, Is that like the Logan Allen, L- Chase, uh, Logan Allen, Knicks? Quantrill, Lauer, uh, Nix... Um, you know, Cosme, I liked, I liked from what I saw here. There's some good relief pitchers. Uh, are, the, are
0: those guys ready by 2019 though? Is that something where we Yeah. Could...
1: I, yeah. Well, and actually what Seidler said yeah. is he thinks that each player is at A for one year, double A for one year, and triple A for one year, which, which isn't really the reality of the no. situation. It could be with a player like Quantrill or, or Lauer, but... When you're taking a bunch of high-ceiling high school arms, that's not usually the progression that they have. So that's actually how he developed his he, – he, he said that at the A level, we have one of the best systems in baseball. And he sees it as one more year at AA, one year at AAA, and then they'll graduate to the majors.
2: Well, I would, I would respectfully disagree with him as someone who's just spent three days out here in, in Fort Wayne. There's, there's some good players here, but there's some pretty obvious holes, like their, their offense – um, for one, I'm going to Lake Elsinore next month, and you know, David and Kevin Charity and Ben have been out there too, and they can spot some holes, like in the outfield, for instance, uh, catching. You know, there have been some on the pitching. Well, maybe a, a fair fairer way to look at this is that I think by 2018, I think fans will be able to see more of a progress of what's coming up and, and more improvement. Um, uh, better players and more homegrown players and people fitting in. To me, the most important thing for the Padres to do is whether you like Preller or not, is to keep him there. The worst thing they could do for some reason is to fire Preller, fire Green, bring in some new guy, and then you start the whole process all over again where, you know, uh, a new guy, understandably, wants his own people in there. But um, I I do think the system has Fort Wayne is a good place where you see some guys that are talented that that probably could be in the major leagues, especially, I think, in pitching and uh, a couple position players. But, you know, three of the top 20 prospects that we had this year, and I think they were on most lists, uh, Javier Guerra and, like, Elsinore, Rudy Heron, and uh, Fort Wayne. Elsinore, too, right? Yeah. Oh. No, he's in Fort Wayne. Have really struggled. You know, Rondone has done, done okay in San Antonio, but as someone who's watched him for a couple of years, I have a real hard time seeing him as a, a major league shortstop, and I think quite a few people watch him play would say the same thing too. Um, yeah, I, I do like I do like the, the direction of the draft that, that Preller did this year. I thought it was pretty good. Um, supposedly the international signings will be good. There is some talent at the A-ball levels, but to say they're they have the best talent in A-ball of anybody in baseball, I think uh, you know that, that's kind of a a, a a five Pinocchio quote right there. <laughs>
1: Well, and that you know, kind of ties into our earlier question on, you know, at what level do you get excited for these players? Um, I don't think the Fort Wayne level is where we should start getting excited.
2: No, I mean, I think, you know, I think kind of a, I think one, I think I've talked with PJ about this a little bit, is, is the way in which you cover them, the way in which people cover the minor leagues, there's two basic ways, and both are wrong. The, 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 if you take the Darren Smith show, which is probably the only one that I listen to, or the interview's, is the, the wrong way would be if he's on there talking to Jordan or Marty and says, hey, you know, the 10-caps are coming in to play the Dayton Dragons. You know, it's a big series. I mean, no one's going to care. Most of these guys will never be in the Padres. And the way that's even worse would be to bring someone like me on and say, well, yes, Michael Geddes is doing well, and I think by 2019 he'll hit 30 home runs and steal 30 bases and play gold gloves center field. You know, if I knew that, I'd have a lot more money than I do now. Um, <laughs> the best way, I think, to do it is kind of just Talk about, you know, at each level, this is what guys are doing. Say what they're doing well. Say what they need to work on. And, you know, this is what the challenge will be at the next one. Michael Geddes has a lot of things to be excited about. But the biggest thing that you have to kind of worry about him is how well he controls his own, how well he's going to adjust to, like, sitting on his pitch and not chasing things. He's still striking out maybe about once, once a game. There's a lot to like. He's a good age. But... You know, you kind of got to be careful when making kind of some, even if they're educated guesses, some foolish projections.
0: I I will say that for, you know, to to credit Peter Seidler just a little Mm -hmm. bit, and I'm not sure this is what he meant, and it might just be completely, you know, just a happenstance, lucky happenstance. You know, if you were to pick, if you could have all your great hitting at, at AAA or all your great pitching at AAA and, you know, vice versa at single A, and say two years from now you need the team to work out. I mean, you would pick having your pit, your good hitters in A, and your good pitchers in low A because you know, historically it's possible to have pitchers go from low A to the major leagues very quickly. Jose Fernandez jumped from high A recently to, to major league level and was an ace instantly. And going back a little bit further, Cole Hamels progressed extremely quickly from single A. But you don't really see that on the offensive
2: very side. Very rare. So, yeah, it's very if everything
0: broke right, I guess it is possible, right? If Logan Allen and Jacob Nix and you know any, I guess maybe some of these other single A arms, they they could theoretically be here in 2019, along right. with guys who are already hitting a Triple A. But it's not likely. I, I think right. that, that yeah. I think the consensus here is that two year window is is a pretty unlikely scenario.
2: And also, you know, a, a part of development I think people always miss is that. It's very rare that someone's going to come up, no matter how good their numbers are, and instantly start producing at a major league level. You know, I like Hunter Renfro as, hopefully I've conveyed that as much as anybody else. But he's probably not going to be very good for the first month he's in the major leagues when, if he has trouble, you know, identifying some breaking stuff on the AAA level, I mean, he's going to get, I mean, he knows this It's going to be pretty tough at uh, at the major league level. But, uh, you know, there's a lot to work with, and it's and to get excited about that he could do it are you worried about Javi Guerra at all um,
1: I, I know I went to see him with uh, with woe doctor yeah. uh, at Elsinore and you know that was in the midst of you know his terrible stretch in May I think um, and it struck me that his you know the four at bats that I saw his approach at the plate was pretty poor um, and Guerra is a case where he kind of came I don't want to say he came out of nowhere but you know, he got on the scene last year with a big year, mm-hmm. and this year certainly his power has stuck around. Um, but his, you know, his average is bad. His OBP has plummeted. Um, his overall slugging is
2: down. Um, Strike. So a lot, making a lot of errors. <laughs> it's, yeah. It's, so, it's, so I mean, at what line, point? There's not
0: much to, to write home about.
2: I'm gonna go off kind of what, what David said. I'm gonna go out and see him uh, next month, but. I think one thing is I had a chance before the season to talk to uh, some of the guys at Greenville, where he was playing. And Greenville, which is in the Red Sox organization, the low A, is very much a hitter's park, and it has a very kind of short right porch. And uh, Garrett, for those who don't know, is a left-handed hitter. So, a couple of the guys I spoke with said he kind of got a little power happy, and you know his ticket to the major leagues is he's got like about a 70 arm, from what I understand. He has very good hands. It was incredible. It was incredible, his arm. So, I mean, he kind of has to kind of go at the same level that, kind of the same development path that Hedges is, that he needs to realize his carrying tool is going to be his defense. And, you know, if he can hit the ball and have enough uh, to keep the defense honest at the plate, that's going to take him there. And he has to kind of get out. And probably like Elsinore is not the best place for him to convey that because that's kind of a short right field porch there too. But uh, I think David made a good point is that, he seemed like his timing was off, but you know, he's awfully young. I mean he's fine. I think the kind of struggles Rudy Harone is having here in Fort Wayne worries him a little bit more than uh than Guerra. But um, we'll we'll see. I mean I, I still am pretty high on, on on Guerra. I wouldn't I wouldn't write him off at, at this point either. Is
1: is this the kind of season where he would fall off of the national top one hundred list though?
2: He could, but you know, I mean I'm not I don't place a whole lot of stock on the the National 100 lists, because, uh, you know, some of that, so much of is these guys just kind of go by numbers and don't actually get to see a lot of these guys play, and I really think each of the 30 teams is kind of a separate entity onto itself, you know, like, I, the one of my favorite writers is Keith Law, who I like quite a bit, and he was kind of negative on Gettys and you know, if you just look at a straight stat line, you can see that. If you actually see him play and talk to the people who watch him every day, they will tell you about the improvement and differences that he made from this year uh, from last.
1: Oh, I can't wait to see Geddes. Oh, you should.
2: If you like ceiling, this is your guy. <laughs> I mean, yeah. yeah, he can. He has a lot of talent. The whole thing with him is, you know, the hit tool. But I mean, when he hits the ball, man, it is it is fun to watch.
0: I have a general question for you. sure. you've seen a lot of Padre's systems. Mm-hmm. Where would you rank this one compared to all the other ones? Is this one much better than the previous ones? I know we had the number one ranked system, quote unquote, a couple years back, um maybe without the upside of this system. but where would you place this one in terms and you know, it always comes back to in terms of something. but I, I will say in terms of helping the Padres win a World Series at some point, where would you rank this one?
2: You know, to answer that question, I think that's why a lot of fans kind of look at uh, minor league, you know, writing or discussions a little dubious. Is, you know, when they ranked him in 2012, like when we go out to spring training and you go on the backfields, probably about 75% of those guys can do something amazing you know, like throw a fastball 95 miles per hour, hit, run. The whole question is consistency. So when you start ranking, what a lot of guys at lower levels were, which I believe that 2012 ranking was on, who couldn't do it coming up, you know, that to me is kind of causing the question of the ranking. I think a real easy way to rank is you take a look at the pro team and how many guys they either drafted or were traded for in the minors, spent at least a year there, and how much they win. Like for me, I think the Cubs have the best system more so than the Braves because you can see it on the field. Maybe these guys in the Braves will do it. You know, I don't know until they do it. So I think, I know that's kind of simplistic, but I, you know, everything else is just a, just a guess or an opinion. As far as your original question, I, I do like this system a lot because I like the direction that the, the people at the top are kind of taking, that they're looking that, as San Diego, as a, as a mid-market or small team, when they take guys, they have to try to draft people that are going to be more than average major league players in order to win. They need to draft guys that have the potential to be superstars, so they need to be taking that type of risk instead of at the sure thing where we kind of go back to the Eric Lauer pick. I mean, I like it that of the six picks, they had one of those guys. I wouldn't like the draft if they had five of them as compared to one. So is that
1: that different? I remember when Jeff Morad first came mm-hmm. in, um, the the draft strategy was to take – you know, spend a little more, supposedly, uh, and take high-ceiling, sometimes high school players. And, and that's obviously the draft where they
2: took Donovan Tate with the first pick. But there's a, there's a and, key on that that you have to go on real quick. is, Morad decided, to his credit, he did a lot of bad things with, on the major league side, but he gave McLeod the money to double the number of scouts. He did that first. And then he went in to the Grady Fuson guys and said, Hey, I, I kind of want to take upside. So these guys had to, on the fly, decide that okay, we want to kind of save our jobs, so we have to take these guys without kind of the base that you need to take those players. It's like Fuson went out and saw Donovan Tate six times, and he decided to take him, which is unheard of because when you look at how the system is now, you know the guys they're looking at. Like when the Quantrill, they have guys who've seen Quantrill pitch since high school. You know they have people who've seen. You know, uh, Potts now, since he was a freshman in high school at these perfect game showcases, the Alderson regime that scouting was vastly overrated. I mean, you can go back to the Darren Smith, uh, Bill Warndale interviews when they wouldn't hire a pro scout. I mean, they would go by numbers. And so they put. This is, this is when they wouldn't hire an, uh, an advanced scout. Yeah, they wouldn't right? hire an advanced scout. They were very stingy on cross checkers. They would really cut into the budgets of how much these guys traveled. So when Morad came in, he doubled that, and that's when you started seeing Padres drafts get better, and pretty much from about the 2011. It's kind of an a overused thing that they draft badly, because that's pretty much from the time period but before uh, 2011.
1: Well, well, and I'm looking at, I actually have the 2011 draft yeah. up, and mm-hmm. it's, if you're going to count a successful draft as the number of players that have reached the major leagues that's and had good. somewhat of an impact, it's it's, it's actually really good. Yeah. Like, you know, you've got Spangenberg – like, I'm looking down the list. You've got Spangenberg, Joe Ross, Jace Peterson, Austin Hedges, Matt Andrees, uh, Matt Whistler, Kevin Quackenbush, Colin man. Ray, yeah. Birch Smith, Matt Stites. All of these guys made the majors. Right. And some of them, you know, in the case of uh, – well, I don't know, Whistler and Hedges – Joe Ross certainly uh, will be better than just making an appearance in the in the majors. Like that's a that's a pretty good draft.
2: Yeah, you know, and the ones in twelve and thirteen, you know, weren't bad, and uh, and fourteen is okay. I think this one's going to be be pretty good. Even, even the one they had last year, where they didn't have a whole lot of uh, early picks, you know, getting a guy like Nick's, who I think very much could be in the mix to be a, you know, a starting pitcher. He, he look he's done very well from the guys I've talked to. You know, Austin Allen is, a, is kind of a, a bit of a project, but he said in 321 he's someone to take a look at. Uh, Zunica, you know, uh, Phil Meton, it could be the fastest risers, a really good bullpen arm, and that's pretty good. And I think this one be even, be even be better. So that's the part I think, as I said, I think it's a process. Will they compete in 2018? I'm not really sure, but I think will they be on a better path if they keep Preller and they allow him the same latitude that he has now? Yeah, I think so. And just to clarify something on the podcast,
0: because this is something that's been talked about a lot, the whole Fire Mike D thing was not an indictment on AJ Preller.
1: So right. we're No, I think I, I explicitly said keep AJ
0: Fire D. Yes, yeah. We're with you in terms of there needs to be continuity in the way they develop players and it's more direction of leadership. So just totally off topic, but wanted to make sure we made that explicit on the podcast.
2: Definitely.
1: Well, I mean, I was even joking with someone on Twitter today, where they pointed out that Preller's trade record, in retrospect, hasn't really been that terrible, with the exception of the Kemp trade. And with the Kemp trade, you can kind of blame D for for that well, one. Well, not just so. that, but
0: the Kemp trade. Yeah, I mean, like taking on the contract and the way he's played for us, horrible. I,
2: I always but think the really interesting Joe part of that. Oh, Greg
0: all everything they gave up hasn't come to fruition, right? Yeah. So, like. They didn't necessarily give up a lot to take on this awful, horrible contract, but just the act of taking on the awful, horrible contract is, is bad in itself. So,
1: Well, I mean, what I'm saying is I don't know if you blame AJ for that.
0: Oh, no, no, no. I'm not saying you blame AJ for it. I'm just saying even even if you didn't blame AJ for it, it's not like what they gave up would have made this Padres team fantastic. The money might have been great, but the actual talent they forfeit was not not significant anymore.
2: I guess the part I'm curious about, and there hasn't really there's been a little bit of reporting on this, is that supposedly Preller was the number two pick. The guy who's the Angels GM was the number one. And what kind of sold him at the end was Proeller made one other discussion with, with Mike D, and that's the part where I'm really kind of curious if He started off initially saying, look, the way we're going to win is we're going to do through the draft, international signings, making trades and acquiring prospects. And then if he said on top we can do this and win at the same time by making a couple of these trades, that's the part I don't know where I wonder if that kind of got D. Because, you know, we can talk about all these guys coming up, and it's great, but until you find a way to move Matt Kemp and, you know, to some extent Upton, and, you know, we already talked about Norris. That's going to kind of kind of stifle these guys. I think the big thing is to try to find a way to have, to take Kemp, and hopefully the Padres ownership is going to understand the concept of sunk costs, and it's better to have, let's say hypothetically, a team like the Cleveland Indians pay like uh, half of the what fifty-four million left to Kemp if, if you could get him to take that, then have the Padres pay all of it, because that, that would the amount of money you have to pay you know, Renfro for three years is negligible compared to how much you're going to save.
0: No, I think there's some definitely something to the theory that A.J. Preller said something at the last minute that changed Mike D.'s right. opinion, right? Because there are those articles out there that say D. was going to choose Billy Epler, which is the Angel right. GM now, and had a last-meeting discussion with him. And then Pedro Gomez went on the Darren Smith show and said – that every other candidate who auditioned said that it would take multiple years to rebuild, and all of a sudden they go out and do all these win-now moves. And, and, you know, it comes back to do you fault A.J. Preller for that? Of course not. Like, I, if if the difference between me landing a dream job of a general manager in baseball is just telling some idiot some bullshit on the last (laughs) day as some last-ditch effort, I'm totally okay with that. And it's not like it completely failed. I mean, it did in a baseball sense. But in terms of marketing the team and, and yeah. you know, revenue for last year, it definitely worked. I mean, I bought season tickets. So, well, and that's that's what
1: everyone does in a job interview. You know, you read you read the crowd, you watch their faces, you see the reaction to what you're saying. Uh, I mean, there's a reason my resume still says I speak Russian because I took it in college 12 years ago or whatever. Um, you know, the, everyone stretches the truth a little. You know, I won't say lies, but uh, embellishes. Their skills on their resume. Well, also so the thing, it's not, shouldn't be surprising. Which is well, also why, if,
0: if you're someone who interviews people for jobs, you should always ask them about like their second to last skill they list. Like that is the. I feel like that's the one
2: on the resume that is always the sketchiest. Well, it seemed like it seemed like D was kind of, you know, it'd be like telling a dietitian that you know I want to lose 20 pounds, but I want to eat a whole cheesecake every day. Um, so I mean, it just seems like. Also, the general perception, which I think the ownership liked, was you know, the Padres are all in this year and they've opened up the, 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 the wallet. When well, in reality, you know, AJ was kind of allowed to go shopping, to use another example of analogy, you know, at the bargain basement bin at, at Saks Fifth Avenue. I mean, he was able to take <laughs> a guy who the Dodgers very much wanted to move. Um, I don't think Tampa wanted Myers, And the Braves were desperate to kind of shed Upton's uh, salary. The only trade where you can really kind of go back on, I think, and have some questions—not those three, but maybe the Kimbrell trade. But even then, that's that's kind of worked out better. Upton's been a much better player than than I would have thought he had been, which is kind of kind of surprising. But he's still a tremendous athlete when you watch him play.
0: No, and I have a, I have something in our drafts column that's I, I think I started typing this in the middle of last year and I've just yeah. never finished it. Basically, I think. Preller saw Kimbrel. He saw some of those other players they got. Derek Norris, I think, would be a good example too, as mm-hmm. currency, as an alternate right. form of currency. And he could have held on to the prospects he traded to get these guys, but they weren't the high ceiling players. And he figured, you know, if I can trade these for an asset that is more easy to move in the future, why shouldn't I do that? You know, that. And, and you saw that with Kimbrell, right? He traded, right? Traded for Kimbrel, kept him for a year, shifted him off for more than what he got him for, and so. You know, it's it, just going back to the original point. I think he's earned more time, and I, I think it definitely would be a mistake to get rid of him, especially because you know this is something you cover on a daily basis. The progression in the minor league system this year has been very unPadres-like. There have been players that have progressed out of nowhere, like I would say. You know, Van Meter at, at High A, and and you know, mm-hmm. your Michael Ke-
1: Michael Kelly, Michael Kelly coming.
0: Yeah, I had written that guy off completely, and and. Now he's a triple-A, and he might actually be up.
1: Double, double-A, uh, I think. No, he's a triple-A. Is he double-A?
2: Triple-A. No. Promoted, the, yeah. You know, the thing that's interesting was I had a, when I was in San Antonio, I had a chance to talk to um, some of the guys it's always fun to talk to. is like the bullpen catcher that they they hire just from the local high school to come in and catch these guys. I mean, you talk to him. He was one saying, he was one is telling me in May, he goes, you know, Kelly, if he puts it together, he has the best stuff. And he was a former first-round supplemental pick. He's had, you know, some problems you can kind of go into, but now he's kind of set. You know, if he has it all together, that is that is someone to watch. It's kind of a similar story to uh, to Colin Ray in a in a, in a little bit. And the, what really kind of turned it on was Ray kind of finally started having confidence in himself. And it's a little bit of the same way with with uh, Michael Kelly. But on Josh Van Meter, I always have been a big fan of. I like him. I think he can get. I think he has the potential to get a lot better too. He actually could be at the top maybe the top third baseman in the system coming up. In, well, it depends how you feel about Berlin, but Ben Meters, yeah, it's flexibility. You can play second, third, even a little bit of shortstop if he has to.
1: I've got a few quick questions. Uh, obviously, I'm a, a large Jabari Blash fan. Mm-hmm. Um, he's currently uh, averaging a home run every, every 10 at-bats right. at El Paso, and like we talked about earlier, I don't know if that's smoke and mirrors or what, but he certainly has a track record for power, and I Obviously, I'm in love with him. Um, is he's not on the 40-man roster at this point? Does does he sniff the majors again? I don't know with the Padres. I think
2: that'd be tough because I think he, you you got to start looking at, you know, as we talked about, you got Kemp and Upton sitting there on the corners, and then you have you know Renfro and I think Dickerson. You know, just by his performance, can we talk about the double-A level? He's kind of earned a spot in front of Blush. And then as I said, you know, Nick Torres, I think, is is putting up some decent numbers on a very bad double A team in uh, in San Antonio, which you gotta kinda take into context. So I mean to me, Black is about too. four. Yeah, and Jenkowski, we got a lot of crap. He be yeah. I like Jenkowski quite a bit. We got a lot of crap about ranking Jenkowski a little bit over Margot, just on the basis that Jenkowski has put together some good season that above double A Margot had yet to do it. Does it mean I eventually think Margot could be better than Jankowski? Sure. I mean, but I think Jankowski's a little bit underrated by national guys pretty much because they didn't see the really big improvement that he made last year as compared to other years.
1: So actually speaking to Margot then, um, you know, obviously Padres fans are excited for him. Sure. He's certainly been hyped. Yeah. Um, Everyone is putting up giant numbers at El Paso, uh, you know, except for Margot. Right. Um, He's an OBP-type guy. Um, His OBP is, I don't know, it looks like 10th, 15th, something like that on the team. Mm -hmm. Um, He's not showing power, and everyone else is showing power. He's got three home runs down there. Um, I mean, I think one of his strengths is obviously his fielding, his quickness. Um, Is this a setback year for him, or should we be
2: just as excited for him? Should probably be just excited. He, he's he's pretty young for that level. And I think the the comparison that's going to be going in the future is how does he compare to Jankowski as a possible center fielder. And they're both kind of different players. Jankowski's about 6'3 His profiles as a classic leadoff hitter, probably has some pretty good gap power. The key with him is to watch if he can turn on balls down the line and uh, going the gaps, and how well his two strike approach works. Uh, Margot, when you see him, is about 5'11, a little thicker. Very good, good defensive outfield. I don't think he's quite the defensive player Jankowski is. Probably has a little bit more power in him when he when he comes out. Um, yeah, they, they could both even play in the same outfield. I mean, I don't think either one of them is going anywhere soon, but. Um, yeah, Margot, when I talked to him, he was said he was pressing a little bit when he came over to a new organization, which is typical. Um, yeah, I, I think he's going to be fine. I mean, uh, I think it's a little too early. I don't think he's ready yet to, to be the starting outfielder in PETCO. It wouldn't surprise me if he came back for another year in El Paso, and that, you know, 22 years old is not bad to be in AAA. I, right. I actually
0: think he's had a pretty good year. I mean, yeah. I would be much more concerned if his numbers were based on him hitting some El Paso home runs. But that's not what he's doing, right? He has no. 20 extra base hits that aren't home runs. He's struck out barely more than 10%, which is a fantastic rate. He's walking. He's stealing bases. He's only 21 at AAA. I, I yeah. honestly think for what he's doing right now, it is about as good as I, could, I would have realistically expected. So I'm, I'm not worried about him at all. I think he's honestly the, the probably the best prospect in the system.
2: Well, the, the, the thing on Margot is he kind of has to do the same thing that Renfro does in a way, is, is figure out which pitches he hits better than others. Because he's, he's a tremendously talented player. He can hit a lot of pitches that he shouldn't be swinging at. And he can sometimes get hit, hits off. Them. He's just going to be a better player if he gets a little more selective. And, you know, he, they have a really good hitting coach in El Paso, as I've talked about. And I, I'm sure that's one of the things they're working with him on.
1: Uh, I had another pet player. Mm -hmm. Um, He's a AAA, Jose Dominguez. Uh, I mean, I like him because he throws like three digits (laughs) velocity, but is he a major leaguer?
2: You know, I'm not as familiar with him. I don't think he was the closer when I was out there, so I'd kind of pass on him. I mean, with the relievers at that level, I think the main stat I look at is, is strikeouts per innings pitch compared to walks, so... Yeah, I think he'll probably come up and do that. San Antonio has a couple guys, which are kind of some interesting uh, bullpen arms. I think the one I liked was Jester; I thought was pretty good. And I uh, like Elsmore has too. But for some reason, the Padres have always been pretty good at developing relief pitchers out of out of nowhere, converting former starters and seeing that. Right. It's called black magic. <laughs>
1: yeah. I wish they'd use that black magic on other things. Yes. Uh, so you go to a lot of minor league parks. Um, mm-hmm. I'd actually never been to a, well, I'd been to a Salem avalanche game when I was in college. Mm-hmm. But other than that, uh, I hadn't been to Lake Elsinore until last year and thought it was really enjoyable. Oh, yeah. It's um, a great,
2: great experience. And it's you can kind of get the whole minor league atmosphere just by taking a, a drive up there. Um, but, yeah, they, they, they run a nice nice ship up there. Yeah. Uh, so what's your favorite? Oh, well, it depends which place I'm at and who I'm talking to, of course. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Probably, probably Fort Wayne is the, the best because the stadium's in a, a small downtown and uh, there's kind of some things to do there. El Paso, both El Paso and the Fort Wayne's parks are are pretty close the same in terms of how nice they are in an individual. Um, the, the best thing about minor league baseball where it really works is in towns where, you know, it's really important. I mean, like San Antonio is a good example that you know, it's all about the Spurs and the missions get hardly any publicity. There are parks on the outskirts of town. There are a bunch of really good guys who run it and try as as best they can, but they don't have all the bells and whistles. It's not a place for like my, you know, my wife and daughter wouldn't like going there as much as they'd like the Tin Caps, who have all sorts of things running around, cute mascots, and El Paso is the same way too. So probably it'd be El Paso or Fort Wayne, probably the favorite ones to go to. How do you
1: like the? Uh... So you're in the in the DC area. Mm-hmm. Um, right. How's the uh, how's it compared to like the uh, Potomac Cannons or the Bowie Bay Sox?
2: I haven't been really to that many parks. I think because when I I get to travel once a month and do this, so I think I'm on kind of a shorter leash with my wife and daughter yeah. when I when I come home. <laughs> so I've gone to the Bowie Bay Sox. I wrote yeah, I got I wrote an article a long time ago on Brian Mattis from USD and I was so impressed with him and he never really, never really panned out. And I've been to Frederick the Orioles are kind of neat because if you're an Orioles fan, you can go see about all the teams within a small radius. You can see the A team, their high, low A, and the short season one in Aberdeen. Well, yeah. for the Padres, they're all over the country.
1: Well, yeah, Morad tried to fix that, right?
2: Yeah, I don't, think the, I don't think a AAA thing really would have worked. What was it? There was something at that time was some of the baseball ops guys were saying, God, you know where it'd really be a good place to play a park would be on on the coast, like up by Carlsbad. Then people could kind of get the atmosphere of of uh, the, the how the ocean air affects the players. That'd be you know fine, and we'd have an, a bigger roster, could calm down. And that's when the the business guy said, "Well, unless you got about three hundred million for a beachfront, you know, <laughs> park, it's probably not going to work." El Paso is a great place for a Triple A team. I know they've been very happy. With uh, with that location, they they you know, they sell out about every game there, and uh, the players really love playing there too. I
0: mean, they could get rid of El, uh, of uh, La Costa Canyon. You know, that's, that's I think that's a region, <laughs> you know, an area they could just get rid of.
1: That'd be a real damage to the national economy. Market. I mean, now that
0: they've produced every player they're ever going to produce, you know, you might as well just get rid of it already. <laughs> I mean, we're pretty busy producing NBA
1: All Stars at the same time. So, was Chase Buttinger an NBA All Star? Oh, he was. Wow. Repeat, repeat, all-star. Wow. Uh, so I lived in the D.C. region as well for 10 years or so, 15 counting college. And, uh, you know, it was a really difficult time following the Padres. You know, some of it's the time zone thing. Some of it's the lack of national stature. Uh, Marver, I'm sure you're going through that somewhat also. Um, how, John, how do you cope with following a team like the Padres while you're out on the East Coast?
2: You know, I stay up a little bit too late and I watch uh, the DirecTV ML, MLB Extra Innings package and the internet's made it much easier to follow all the guys and keep in contact. The three of the writers on Mad Friars <laughs> all live in San Diego, so they help keep me appraised and things too.
1: Have you gone through the issues of being at a sports bar or some bar and actually trying to convince them to
2: put a Pottery's game on?
1: I, I used to choose places that were not popular and empty just so that I could get my game put on. No, I,
2: gotta, you know, I live in... Uh, just north of georgetown in glover park so i have a nice uh you know like all people on the internet i have a nice basement where i can go down and write in the only thing is i own the house not my mom uh yeah uh, can watch the games down there
1: oh i used to have a sweet projector setup when back when i had a basement yeah that's the one thing missing from san diego is a basement i used to have a great 120 inch projector in my hd projector in my basement yeah
2: it's a good place to go down and watch the games and uh it's quiet then, most people have gone to bed so I can watch. It's cooler game. in the summer. Yeah, it's not bad. And you know, and also the main thing I don't write so much about the Padres or do that, it's mainly about the the minor league teams and all that that that's kind of helps us on that way. Cool. Hey, real quick, what do you think of National's Park while you're there? Well, Nationals is a nice park. I probably like Camden Yards a little bit more, but Nationals is a is a nice place to go. I kind of miss RFK in a way because uh that was a place where truly you had to hit a shot to get out of that thing. I mean, they even screwed up, I remember, the, the distance from those places. But, yeah, they're trying to build a little bit more around there. The big thing will probably help them when they build a soccer uh, stadium down that area too.
0: Uh, what, one not thing any- on Camden Yards, by the way, I'm going to the game next weekend, so not this upcoming one, the, the, the following one. They are having Manny Machado Garden Gnome night, and they look <laughs> so fantastic. I am so excited to drive down there.
1: I, no, that's fine, Marva. We had Bitmoji t-shirt night, so the one thing I'm sure I they missed, were jealous of us.
2: The one thing I missed in El Paso was they had, I just missed the Cody Decker bobblehead night. And I talked to Cody for an interview with the El Paso Times, and he had a great line was, he said he called the bobblehead the greatest honor of his career so far, but... He had one suggested that he wanted a, a chia pet element in it so it could capture the reality of his chest <laughs> hair. And he thought, he thought <laughs> the fans would be okay with watering it, trimming it, letting it grow. So I kind of miss Cody a little bit in the Padre system this year, too. He was always fun to chat with. Uh, we all miss him. Yeah.
0: I, I have one last question for you. Sure. I want you to give readers, or I guess listeners and your readers who are listening to this podcast, one prospect who's, who's not on the top ten lists, who you've seen in person who you think has a chance to become a next big prospect for the Padres. It just is not on the radar yet.
2: Hmm. I couldn't really think about that offhand. I would think if I had to guess right now, it might be Brad Zunica. He's nine he's 20 years old, I think. He's at a uh, Florida, was a 15th round pick. He's 6'6, 260, first baseman, left-handed hitter. You know, if he puts it together a little bit more with his timing and gets his um, kind of cleans up some of his swing mechanics. I mean, this could be kind of another version of Kyle Blanks uh, that someone could be there. I think he was—he's in our. I think he was in our top thirty. I'm not sure, but he's—you know—just because of his size and age alone, that's someone kind of worth watching. I was joking with a, the Fort Wayne uh, announcer who does basketball in, in the off season. It's, it kind of looks like a basketball team. I'm six three, and I never felt so short in my life around a baseball team. They have about uh, five or six guys that are six six, and they're just really good. AJ enjoys size quite a bit. especially with pitchers.
1: I mean it's worked in the past for us. Yeah. Chris Young. Yeah. Chris Young made up for lack of velocity with his height and distance to the plate. So. When you
2: go to Lake Elsinore, there's a guy who might have one of the best nicknames in Minor League Baseball. I think it's Matisse Arias. He's a Dominican guy. He's six foot ten. And his nickname is a uh, Coconut Tree. <laughs> yeah, he used to have a bit of a Jerry curl, and the players thought that looked like little coconuts. So, uh, I think that's one of the better nicknames I've heard.
1: Well, I think this has been really interesting. Um, you know, the Padres, like we said in the intro, the Padres are in a position where, you know, we could sit here and talk about the impact of Adam Rosales on the major league team, but mm. you know, the 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 thing is, the futures what we're all counting on at this point. I mean, you know, it's really all we have to count on. So
2: yeah, that's true.
1: I think these talks and exposing some of these players to fans and listeners and readers is important for, you know, for us to maintain our sanity as as fans.
2: Very much agree. I, that's what kind of the reason I got into it at first was I just, I think when I really got back into baseball around 2000, there just wasn't a whole lot of information on this. And uh, I think that's one thing all of us who write on Mad Friars hope is that... Uh, you know, people who are interested in how the minor leagues are doing and different players, I hope we can provide some information so uh, you know people can have all sorts of different opinions about who's coming up, who's not, who could be a good player, and who wouldn't. But uh, at least they'd know the names of some of these players and what they can and can't do.
1: Yeah, and if you get a chance, go to the go to the games. Oh, uh, definitely. Lake Elsinore was a, re- a really great time.
2: Yeah, Elsinore is a great game, and if you're uh, outside the San Diego area in Texas or in Indiana or in the uh, Upstate Washington, go see the Tri-City Dust Devils or the Tin Caps, Missions, or Chihuahuas. You'll have a fun time.
0: And uh, more importantly, uh, you can go listen to uh, Mr. Conniff here and, and read his stuff on madfriars.com. Just right now, among the more interesting columns, they have interviews with J.J. Cooper of Baseball America. Jim Callis is on there talking about the Padres draft. They do the best job of any minor league website for the Padres, so I highly recommend them. If you're looking for, if if you're looking for anything on the Padres minor league system, or you just want to, ha- you know, ask a question about the third catcher on Lake Elsinore, anything like that. Um, well, thank you very much. Very it's much
1: very nice to say. It. Well, and I think you actually had a really interesting interview series is it with
2: Chris Kemp also on the on this year's draft. Uh, no, we had it. We had it, David J. did it with Mark Connor on the draft. Okay, and hopefully we're going to have one coming up with Chris Kemp. On the international draft, we'll have uh, Kevin Charity. We'll talk with Ben Badler on uh, Baseball America, and hopefully we'll break down some of the guys that they're signing from Latin America, which is God, just a whole nother complicated thing. But uh, Mark Conner, David did a real nice job with Mark Conner on the draft. What we tried to do in that series was we tried to make sure we had three independent guys from Scout, Baseball America, and MLB.com talk about the Padres draft. And then we, you know, put Mark Connor on there and let him kind of comment on what other people have said.
1: Well, and he was obviously very, 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 very positive on the job that they did. I, so. I would
2: hope so. If he's the guy who, who picked most of them, if Mark's not positive yeah. on them, that's a that's a real bad sign. Yeah.
1: Yeah, and, and that's why it's good to get different viewpoints. Yeah. You know, if you if you, I mean, we touched on the media a little bit, but sometimes you need those independent. If you just listen to the team talk about their progress and performance i mean mike d said he's doing the greatest job on earth so right
2: you know I, um, if you go back to the draft coverage you know i'd hope guys like you and other uh people who are really fans of the team like like all of us are would would read that and, you know you guys can people can make up their own minds about what they thought they should have done or shouldn't have done and there's a lot of you know different and, and actually good opinions on that yeah
1: well i want to thank you very much uh this is you know, this was a long episode, but I think it was chock full of really interesting information for fans. So
2: thank you very much, John. Hey, well thank you for having me. It was a lot of fun. I appreciate it. Wait, real quick, one last
0: question. Sure. <laughs>
1: I'm
2: not been
0: okay. able to figure this out, and it is the most random question ever, but it is a great nugget. When I'm looking at the Padres Minor League rosters right now, in yeah. the Arizona League, there is a guy named Henry Henry. Is That's that it. his real name?
2: Yeah, that is. I wrote that in. A, on Saturday nights, I usually do the the system rundown, which is actually a really good way to follow uh, the Padres. And I wrote Henry Henry, and I had his numbers, and I wrote in parentheses, "Yes, that is his real name." I forget the story <laughs> behind that. Uh, next time we're on, I will I will get that information for you though.
0: I will have to name my first kid Marver. Marver.
1: Mar- <laughs> <laughs> Don't be so mean to him, Marver. You're gonna get a girl just for that. Hey, it's
0: better than jag off, jag off. All right. <laughs> That's <laughs> a good point. That's true.
1: <laughs> all right. Well, I guess we should thank everyone for listening, and uh, and uh, go to MadFriars.com. It's it's great, 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 great information. So thanks again, John.
2: Hey, thank you guys. All
0: right. Until next time, Padres fans, go Padres.
1: Go Padres.
3: The Mission Valley got its dream, they got a big league baseball team when Gomez led them in 69. Colbert and Jones did well, but the Padres couldn't gel. Till Williams took the reins and got the team in line. I'm talking baseball, Wynn and Wiggins on the loose, Padre baseball. Trevecki and the goose, McReynolds, Tempe, Lawler, and TK. Garvey Nettles with and shall we'll will save the day. I'm talking baseball. The Padres all the way. KB Bobby Flan with Key Pinch Hits. Nowhere is in Steve Garvey's Mitt Martinez. Gunned down Pete Rose at the plate. As a starter or from the pen, Trevecki did it time and again. By the all-star game, the prospects here were looking great. I'm talking baseball, Winn and Wiggins on the loose. Padre baseball, Trevecki and the Goose. There's McReynolds, Tempe, Lawler, and TK. Garvey, Nettles, Witson, Schau, will save the day. Talking baseball. Padres all the way When you're talking Padre baseball You're talking Pennant in 84 They were put together by Trader Jack McReynolds white seat in the second deck On the bench the San Diego utility teamwork Atlanta lost an intimidation And Dickie took a brief vacation Puff the magic bat Began to boom The hitting machine there was no stopping Levitz and Thurman kept on popping After years of trying The flag would be flying in San Diego soon I'm talking baseball Winning Wiggins on the loose Pottery baseball Trevecki and the Goose McReynolds, Tempe, Lawler And TK Barbie Nettles with some shower will save the day. I'm talking baseball, Padres all the way. Baseball, the Padres all the way.